Informed Dissent, brought to you by Firearm Training Associates. Firearms Training Associates is, is a lucky company because we have been able to draft in some of the best instructors in the world. We have special operations guys, we have guys from the U.S. military, from foreign militaries that work for us. They provide a great deal of insight into self-defense. So we developed this so that our customers could come on the weekends and get the best training in the world. We pride ourselves on our civilian training. It's our armed civilian that's one of the most important things to us. We want to teach them how to survive dangerous situations. When you come through the course, as long as you're performing at a acceptable level, you're going to get a certificate that puts our stamp on it. And we take it serious when we put our stamp on there. When you get our gold label, that means that you've passed the class that you've attended. Firearm Training Associates, proud sponsor of Informed Descent. Find out more at ftatv.com. Informed Descent. The intersection of healthcare and politics with Dr. Jeff Barkey and Dr. Mark McDonald. Well, Mark, welcome again to another edition of Informed Descent. Great to be with you. Well, listen, we've got a great guest on tonight, uh, one who I read about in an epic Times article that was written by uh, Jennifer Margulis that writes a lot about healthcare issues uh, for the Epic Times. But before we do that, um, we have a wonderful sponsor that's been helping us out, and that's Firearms Training Associates. You and I both took an advanced handgun class there a few weeks back, and it was fantastic. As a matter of fact, uh, Kristen, one of the um, owners of the uh, of the organization, she and I have been texting. And I've got a new gun on order that I'm going to hopefully go and sign the paperwork in the next few days and be ready to take the next class. I am so excited about my next class, which is actually coming up in just a few days. I'm going to be taking a course on home invasion. You come home, your loved ones are inside screaming, the door has been kicked open. What do you do? That's the premise of the course. And I'm hoping to get an answer to that question by the time I finish. I love it. So thank you to Firearms Training Associates. And now the moment you've been waiting for, uh, Dr. William Parker is a researcher uh, formerly at Duke University, which is a whole story in and of itself. And the article I read was in part about his experience there, but more important to me as a primary care doctor is he's done some really interesting and revealing research about Tylenol, acetaminophen. Tylenol is the brand name. Acetaminophen is the chemical name and how it affects uh, young children. So Dr. Parker, welcome to Informed Descent. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So tell us a little bit about your research and, uh, and what happened ultimately that that article was written about you. I've been looking at sort of chronic inflammatory diseases in Western society for, for more than 10 years now. Um, and that includes allergy, autoimmunity, um, depression, anxiety disorders, all those are associated with kind of chronic inflammation. And then one day someone told me, hey, you should really look at, look at autism. And as soon as we started looking at autism, we knew something was different. The time, it's off by about 100 years. It should it is associated with inflammation. It's associated with a, sort of a chronic immune problems. And those kinds of things normally would start up in the late 1800s. That's where you'd see them first appear. Whereas autism, it's sort of much later. It was, it was identified as a rare disorder in the 1940s. And then about birth cohort 1980, it started to take off. And then through the 1990s, it really just skyrocketed. It's interesting because... It's about the same time that 
the rate of vaccinations, the number of vaccinations that little kids get and all through high school dramatically increased. And there's always controversy about whether there's an association between vaccinations and autism, but there may be an additional missing link that you've discovered. Right. So it was actually Stephen Schultz that really put all the pieces together. And he published the in the first evidence that anything was wrong at all with acetaminophen or Tylenol, he published in 2008. And, and what had happened, and his, you can find his story um, freely available online. He was a practicing dentist. His kid got a vaccine, got sick, got diagnosed with autism. And there, there, was, there, there are still some studies in, especially in, there's a nice one in Europe that shows if you forego the vaccines, you can still get autism. So he was saying it must be something else. So he quit his dentistry practice and went and got his PhD at the University of California. And what he found was that if you have a bad reaction to the MMR vaccine, it is associated with autism, but only if you take acetaminophen, not if you take ibuprofen. And then furthermore, he found that just asking the parents, did they give acetaminophen from 12 to 18 months, he found a 20-fold increase in regressive autism. Now, 20-fold, so that's 2,000%. So that means almost all the cases of regressive autism in his cohort, which, which means the child was developing to a degree and then reverted back, right? So that, that was a full increase if the parents had used acetaminophen versus not. It's almost universal these days that when a kid comes in for a childhood vaccine, that the pediatric offices, family practice offices, preemptively give kids Tylenol. Yeah, that's not recommended by the Pediatric Association, but you're right, they still do that. At least that's been my experience working, you know, I've been in private practice now for, oh boy, 25 plus years, and it's fairly routine. We're gonna give you a little Tylenol so that your kid doesn't develop a fever, so they don't feel bad to, to mitigate potential side effects. And I know that's done almost universally. So what you're saying is maybe just maybe, it's the interaction between Tylenol and the vaccines that could be the problem. Well, so it's the interaction between Tylenol and anything. So if you if you if you take say ten boys, all of them with inf, quote unquote infantile autism, which means we think they were born with it, and all of them circumcised. This is important. So they're all and this is not uncommon. They're all circumcised. They all have infantile autism. Half of those will have been in half of those cases will have been induced by the circumcision, right? So that, and that's something most pediatricians have no idea that circumcision is associated with a twofold increase in infantile autism. That, and that's just astounding. So of course, acetaminophen, Tylenol is a common denominator there. And what, what the way that it looks, you may know there's some lawsuits out now against Tylenol and even some distributors of the drug, but that's all about use during pregnancy. So pregnancy, based on all available data, the evidence that Tylenol can cause autism during pregnancy, it's good, but it's not what I would call overwhelming. I've been, you know, I've, nothing to do with autism, but I've been uh, cautioning patients uh, about using Tylenol anyways, that it's commonly looked at as this benign drug, it's over the counter and people just take it and they think it's perfectly safe. And it's not. It's the leading cause of acute liver failure in the United States. I had a patient, <clears throat> very sad story, older guy, stoic, 
construction worker, contractor. Matter of fact, he built my office year and a half, two years ago when we moved in. And he never complains, but he had chronic pain. And nobody knew this, but he was taking acetaminophen, popping them like Tic Tacs. His back would hurt, he'd take a couple more. A few hours later, his back would hurt, he'd take a couple more. And he did this for months and months and months. Ultimately, he went into acute liver failure, ended up at UCLA on the transplant list. And here's where the story gets even worse. So they stabilized him and they were waiting for him to, uh, uh, to get a, a liver, to be a, a transplant patient. They insisted that in order to get a transplant, he needed to be vaccinated against the COVID vaccine. Ultimately, his family wanted him to get the liver. He got vaccinated and shortly thereafter, he developed uh, a blood clot and had a stroke and unfortunately died as a result of the, all the complications. And so I've been warning patients about Tylenol. I don't think it's a safe drug. On a rare occasion, taking a couple Tylenol or acetaminophen may be fine, but you gotta be careful because it's toxic to the liver and it depletes the body's glutathione, which is the master antioxidant. That's a very bad thing. So I don't think it's a good drug. I, I will never take that drug again. A um, little bit of Advil if I have pain or a headache or some other alternative. I'm just not sure it's a safe product. And then when I read about your studies linking acetaminophen, we you know commonly call it Tylenol. It's calling it, it's like saying you know a tissue is Kleenex. It's just common nomenclature. You know, no disrespect to the company that makes Tylenol, although that's another story. Um, that uh, that potentially there's a link here between acetaminophen and autism. And that's, that's what your studies are showing. I think what we did was that was, we did some studies in rats and you know, my lab did, we're still doing studies in rats. Um, what we really did was try to put all the evidence together and look at the big picture. And nobody had really done that before. And, and to your point, most doctors know that acetaminophen is dangerous for the liver. Okay. So what, and Initially, we had trouble publishing our papers because people said, hey, everybody knows this is safe. And that's what the reviewers were saying in the peer-reviewed system. And you've got to get through that system if you want to get the word out about things. So what we had to do was we took a step back and said, okay, did anybody ever actually look at this and see if it's safe for brain development? And we know that the drug targets the brain right? The, it shuts down a fever by affecting the hypothalamus that's in the brain, right? So it's, it's targeting the brain. So we need to check since we're giving it to a newborn and even to a fetus, we should check and see if it's safe for brain development. And you know, tracking through thousands and thousands of papers, we determined that what had happened was back in the 1960s and early 1970s, the doctors knew that in adults, it was dangerous for the liver they assumed and we know it's a bad assumption that to assume that a baby is just a small adult that biochemically it's just a smaller adult and that is not true babies are fundamentally at a cellular and biochemical level they're different and what we now know is based on studies in animals that the brain is the target of toxicity not the liver if you're a baby so that and that was just that was just a mistake it was a flat out mistake Wow. And, you know, we do crazy stuff with newborns thinking that they're just little adults and we stick them in need with needles. We routinely now in most U.S. hospitals, a newborn baby is uh, is given a hepatitis B, B like boy vaccination. Of, of course, a, a newborn is not 
at risk of hepatitis B, which is a sexually transmitted disease um, or blood products, but yet we give them hepatitis B into a brand newborn baby. And that hepatitis B has approximately 200 micrograms of aluminum in it. So we're injecting a drug that the baby doesn't need with a neurotoxin, and somehow everybody thinks that's okay. Well, probably the best example or most widely known is the chloramphenicol, right? First generation antibiotic that was used, and it killed about, I think, around 50 babies. You know, And the thing about that drug is it kills them quickly. So then right away, people realize, whoa, this is doing something different to the baby than it does to the adult. The problem with the acetaminophen is that you don't see autism till think about the circumcision induction, right? You're never, you're going to assume they were born with it, which is why it gets classified as infantile, right? It's only, and then of course, when it's, it's associated with a sickness or something else later down the road, you can blame it on the sickness or the reason that you gave the acetaminophen. Yes. So it, is this research going to get published and are people going to actually look at it and is it going to change anybody's mind? Well, so the answer to the first question is yes, it's getting published because it's, you know, it's, it's very solid science. Um, you, we, I, my lab gave acetaminophen to baby rats, baby laboratory rats. It's the exact same dose that we give it to human babies on a weight adjusted basis course. And we saw roughly a 50% increase long-term in anxiety. So, you know, and, you know, you you can publish that stuff in a nice journal, no problem. You know, you run controls, you do all the, you know, the right thing. There's no placebo effect because the rat doesn't know what you're doing to it. It doesn't know what you're injecting into it. So that stuff gets published. When You know, when you look at the circumcision connection, that got published. Um, the a guy named Henrik Viberg did a great job giving acetaminophen to baby mice. And he could show, and mice are... Mice and humans are more similar. Rats are more resistant to acetaminophen as far as we know. But when he just gave two doses to baby mice, they permanently lost their ability to learn. And and these doses weren't much higher than what we give to babies. Well, I think rats are much more similar to most of our politicians. (laughs) (laughs) So can I I, uh, speculate a little bit about what happened to you specifically at Duke that was written in the article? Oh, sure. Yes. That story is getting out, you know, and and I think it's obviously best to focus on, you know, acetaminophen if there's any questions and you can, you know, all the information is being published, but there, you know, there is, I have no uh, incentive to protect the guilty. Let's just put it that way. So you worked at Duke and you'd been there for many years doing your research. Right. Yeah. 27 years. And, th- and then you start talking and publishing this acetaminophen Tylenol stuff. And there's an interesting coincidence that there's some members, Tylenol is made by Johnson and Johnson, and that there's some members of the Duke board of directors that also happen to have an affiliation with Johnson and Johnson. No, it's not the board of directors. The president and CEO of the university right now is on the board of directors for Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, to be, to be specific. And then somehow your stellar career at Duke is uh, comes to an end where you're no longer renewed and your research is no longer granted. And suddenly now you're you're an independent contractor, no longer welcome at Duke. Well, so it's it's actually a little worse than than what you're making it sound, because what what happened was I had funding for my salary and to do the research. And my lab was shut down because it was not in the strategic interest 
of that. I've never heard of anything like that before. I mean, I've been there 27 years and, and, you know, I'm not, I, I was very blessed, very fortunate. We discovered the function of the human vermiform appendix. You know, that's something that Leonardo da Vinci was working on. So that's pretty cool. Um, I was the first one to publicly um, predict that COVID-19 would not be as deadly in low-income populations, age-adjusted, because they have certain symbiotic organisms in their gut that would protect their immune system. And, and that turned out to also the studies that came out of Africa showed that that is correct. So, I mean, I had, you know, I had accomplished a reasonable amount of things while at the university. Um, so in my experience, it was fairly unheard of that they just say, no, no, you're, you're, there's, it's not in the strategic interest of your lab. Of, of the university or the department now and keep in mind it's it's only middle level administrators as far as i know that's the only ones i ever interacted with uh but but somehow the 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 president of the university who's also on the board of johnson and johnson uh implicated in your research that uh, the product that johnson and johnson makes tylenol uh, may be associated with autism and suddenly you're no longer welcome at the university well you know so I can be really confident that acetaminophen causes autism. I can't be confident. I have, I don't have proof that that had anything to do with my leaving Duke. I know. I hear you. Just yeah, a, yeah. I mean, just a random coincidence. It could be a random coincidence. Whereas there's so many things going on with this acetaminophen autism connection. There's no way that it's a random. It's not, you know, a good friend of mine said, hey, I was talking to him at lunch today. He said, everything you've got is just association. He said, that is a false statement. That is absolutely a false statement. So, yeah, there's so much. So, I mean, in adults, for example, if you give acetaminophen or Tylenol to an adult, it will decrease their social awareness. There's been several papers published on that. And the average doctor doesn't even know it affects your social awareness. And of course, the lack of social awareness is one of the hallmarks, sort of a definition, part of the definition of autism spectrum disorder. So based on what you know in your research, if you had a little kid, a newborn, would you give them acetaminophen? Well, so when answer, so I, I'm not allowed to give medical advice, right? Now, you probably are, but I'm not. But that being said, if you look at the literature, fevers are protective. Right. It's a part of your immune response. So when you suppress that, you are immunosuppressing your baby. Right. That's just what you, that's by definition what you're doing since it's part of the immune response. And fevers are known to improve outcomes from many infections. Now, that's number one. Number two, we don't even have good evidence that Tylenol will will alleviate a dangerous fever. Right. That, and that's been looked at and there's just no evidence for it. So the doctors are saying, hey, fevers are dangerous. Number one, mostly false. And number two, we have to treat them, which there's no evidence that you even can if you're just looking at the dangerous, quote unquote, dangerous fevers. I've really changed. I really changed the way I've recommended uh, patients treat themselves when they're ill. I now no longer recommend they treat the fever. Uh, I tell them to allow the fever to occur. It's healthy, it's protective, it's healing. Of course, don't get dehydrated. And I know it feels miserable when you have a fever. So maybe you take a little Advil at bedtime to help you sleep. But generally speaking, I don't recommend somebody treating a fever anymore, including in, including in children. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, there's just the evidence isn't there that it's a reasonable thing to do. 
if you now certainly that's what the average physician will do they will treat the fever and the average parent I mean so the big rise in autism coincides with a huge increase in direct-to-consumer marketing so they you know by showing pictures of a unhappy child you show a picture of your drug and then you show a picture of a happy child you've then said everything in a picture that Congress will not allow you the law won't allow you to say in words and you've convinced the parent, if you're a good parent, you will use this chemical on your child. Yeah. And uh, Johnson & Johnson is a very powerful multinational pharmaceutical company that spends billions and billions of dollars on marketing and advertising. No question about that. You know, something that Tylenol often advertises itself for is comfort. You know, I remember growing up when I would feel general malaise, colds, you know, achy muscle pains, and I would get Tylenol and I took it as an adult for the same reason. I just felt better when I was feeling achy. And that often happens when you're sick, like when you have a viral infection, like a cold, for example, and Tylenol makes you feel physically better. But what many people don't know, and Jeff brought it up earlier, is that when you take Tylenol, you deplete your glutathione storage, which is also the reason why you develop liver failure when you overdose on Tylenol, because glutathione is protective against the toxic compound that Tylenol forms in the body. And without glutathione, your, your liver is destroyed by that toxin. But in addition to that, glutathione, as he indicated, is also critical in protecting against the infection and the infectious process of respiratory viruses. And so the exact time that you need your glutathione, which protects your immune system and its battle against this invader, this virus, is the time that you often take the Tylenol. And so now you've basically disarmed your immune system in one specific area, and it actually makes then the infection worse. So when I discovered that and learned about that uh, a few years ago, I stopped using Tylenol whenever I had a cold or an infection, and I started taking the opposite of Tylenol, which is a glutathione replacement supplement called N-acetylcysteine. Unfortunately, within a couple of months of N-acetylcysteine being proven through research studies to be effective against the Wuhan virus, it was banned by the federal government and it was taken off all of the sales sites on Amazon, about 3,000 suppliers, and you could no longer purchase N-acetylcysteine for about 90 days. I think it's back now. I think you can purchase it again. You can. So, it, But it was gone for about three or four months. It was impossible to purchase it. So it's very interesting how these, uh, as you were saying earlier, when these associations um, tend to sprout up, and even though we can't prove causation, they're definitely highly suspicious. <laughs> right. I w let me add just a couple of things on to that, Mark. Um, first of all, you can get cysteine as well as reduced glutathione. So there's a lot of biochemically, there's a lot of things you can do over the counter that would help compensate for that, and then. I think a key thing to keep in mind is that that most people are going to be able to handle the acetaminophen, which is why you don't see 100% of children with or 95% with autism or um, ADHD, which is probably a, a lower level of injury from the same drug. And and you know, there's genetic factors. There's, you know, it's, as you said, have they had a viral infection? Have they had antibiotics? Antibiotics are huge. They deplete glutathione as well. 
They can obviously hamper the microbiome, which is important for a lot of the biochemical processes that go on. Um, if you look at uh, another example is that 72%, Richard Fry did this work, 72% of the children with autism have an antifolate receptor autoantibody that affects and folate vitamin B very, very important for generation of antioxidant potential in the brain. So you've got all these other factors that you don't even know are there. So most kids are okay. And it's the same with the liver, right? If, if you know, somebody is just taking way too much Tylenol or they're taking it with alcohol, especially that can be problematic because of the glutathione issue. So most people are going to be okay. So a lot of people say, well, my kid took Tylenol and he or she is fine. Absolutely. That's the average outcome. The problem is that the, the adverse outcome is becoming more and more common. And people just are not aware of the risk and people are not educated about it. Somebody asked in the chat, what's the age range? Um, during pregnancy, there is some risk. It's relatively low. It comes only with heavy use as far as we can tell based on available data. It's not my data. This is published data from other um, investigators. And then there's a huge spike in risk right at the time of birth. And that's there's a cord blood study that came out showing this fourfold increased risk in the highest um, third of the patients with the highest third of the levels of acetaminophen and and of course then there's the big circumcision connection and then it probably goes out until five or six years you really don't see regressive autism occurring after that so that's to, and that was just like picking up a question in the chat yeah i mean i wonder if uh, tylenol acetaminophen didn't exist and it was put before the FDA right now to be approved, if it would ever be approved. And the answer is there's no way in the world. Yeah, I don't know about how, what kind of strong language you get to use on this program. But there's no way in the world, I'll just say that, that this drug... You can use whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> We're not subject to FCC communications violation. Well, so think about this, right? The biggest, it's considered the biggest medical disaster in human history, right, was the thalidomide. Right. That, yeah. And it was blah. It never got. So this is 1957, 1961. Right. And one one person at the FDA blocked it. And the only reason she blocked it is because they didn't have any safety data. That's the only reason. Right. So not only do we not have safety data for this drug, we have lots and lots of data that show it's bad. And if you can give two doses in a mouse that permanently removes its ability to learn by definition it can never go to phase one trial because that's a severe adverse event in an animal you cannot go to a phase one trial so jeff the answer to your question is absolutely no way wow if this was being tested today would it ever pass it just would not pass yet people just buy it over the counter and keep it all the time and take it like there's almost no risk associated with it. People are so comfortable with it. Uh, one of the studies showed that 15% of all administrations are overdoses, right? And you think, of, you know, think about Steve Schultz, the dentist, right? And his story, like I said, freely available. You go home, your kid's less than six months. It's the only drug you can give them. And you're, you've, been, you've been programmed, you've been brainwashed that this is safe. And so your kid gets sicker and sicker and you think this is the only thing I've got right, that can help this kid. And you've got nothing else that can help them. Like yeah. I said, 15% of administrations are overdoses based on one study that was done. Yeah, that's insane. So you're no longer at Duke. Where are you doing your research? Uh, well, so um, I, have a, I have a private lab that, we're, that we do some of the work in that's up in Pennsylvania. 
and then and I'm still based down in North Carolina and then we collaborate with other academic institutions who again I'm just the facts are they don't have um, members of the board of directors of Johnson Johnson in their staff so not that that has anything to do with what happened to me I don't know that but Right, I understand. Yeah, I've I've been I was an academic for almost twenty eight years, so I've got former students running around everywhere, people that are good people willing to help and work on this. And it, like I said, right now we think thalidomide was the biggest medical disaster in human history, and that affected, and I'm going to say only about ten thousand children. So this is much much bigger than that. So let me ask you this: Are will you be rooting for a Duke? Um, I you know I'm kind of. I'm pretty busy, so I don't actually watch sport. Uh, I do have I have a blacksmith shop. I'll go out there and I have some very big hammers that are extremely therapeutic. <laughs> Got it. And what what research are you working on right now? Well, so we're you'd be amazed at what hasn't been done. So nobody's actually looked at the nobody's looked at what the lethal dose of acetaminophen is in a newborn laboratory animal. I mean, it's just, that's the LD50, they call it, right? A basic toxicology parameter. Nobody's looked at that. And I can tell you if I, if I'm not allowed to give you the number now, because it would, you know, that's like a bad etiquette with collaborators to go giving out their data. Um, and besides, we got to confirm it, but it, it's shocking. It's truly, truly, it's nothing like what you, what you think it is. If you know, it's nothing like what they thought it was when they made these decisions in the 1960s. And, and when you do this on animal studies, is it easy to then take a leap and guesstimate what it, what it is in humans? Well, so we like to use rats who are more resistant than humans and mice because rats have more complex social behavior like humans do. So there'd be a couple of levels of extrapolation, but let's just say, well, so most pediatricians don't realize if a kid skips two meals, it doubles the toxicity of acetaminophen. Mm. And that's been known for a long time because it basically depletes your liver's ability to process the drug. You, you know, just so if the child doesn't eat, say, breakfast and they can't keep down lunch and then you take them to the doctor, it's, you know, the, whatever the toxicology studies are that the doctor knows, those don't count anymore. And, and of course, when kids are sick, they tend not to eat. Yes, that is correct. So they're not eating. You give them a drug. And they're maybe on antibiotics, right, which also depletes glutathione. So you've got, you've got a lot of things going on. And that acetaminophen is such a simple little molecule. I'm a PhD in chemistry, right? So it's super, super simple. You know, I think I could draw that molecule even after like three glasses of wine. It's so simple. But the bottom line is it does a lot of stuff. Just after, after those three glasses of wine, you shouldn't take the molecule, though. Well, that is absolutely true. I, even yes. No, absolutely. I don't think my wife has it in the house. anymore. <laughs> Good. I no longer have it in my house. I, it's not a it's not a chemical I need to take. Knowing what I know about it, there are there are other products that I think are better and safer than, uh, than acetaminophen. So Dr. Parker, it's been an honor to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on uh, Informed Dissent, and uh, I hope our listeners and viewers enjoy what you had to say. If people want to follow you, where can they learn more about you? Are, are you on social media, or is there a site that they can uh, 
connect with you? We are on social media. The best place to go, especially if you want to know, you know, I've talked about a lot of studies. If you want references for those, you want to look at the original studies, our website has everything on it. What's the website? It's WPLaboratory.org. WPLaboratory.org. Yep, that's it. Well, again, thank you for joining us. It's been an honor. And hopefully we can stay in touch and continue to follow your research. Thank you very much, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.